A reading from the book of John, chapter 21, 18 through 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you would stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Philip. Well, during this season of uh, Easter tide, which, uh-oh, there we go, um, which is, if that's unfamiliar to you, it's, it's this, the, the few weeks between Easter and Pentecost, which is next week. Uh, we have been looking at these uh, uh, encounters that the resurrected Jesus has with his disciples, with his family, with his friends, and how he meets them in these really specifically human spaces. He meets them in their, in their failures and their doubts and their sadness. And this morning, I want you to see that he, he also meets them in their uh, comparisons, for lack of a better word. This, this instinct that they have and that we have to want to compare ourselves to each other. And uh, to, to set up this passage, um, this is how I wanted to talk about it. I don't know if you've ever been to a, a little child's birthday party before. If you've been to a little kid's birthday before, you will know that they are insane. We, we, we take a day and we infuse it with all of these inflated expectations and excitement and we say, all of your friends are going to come over to celebrate you. It's all about you. And then we stream up these banners and we put up posters and, and, and decorations of the kids' favorite, you know, characters from, you know, their shows or cartoons or whatever. Then we have all of these wild children all come together and we pump them full of Kool-Aid and, and candy and give them this fun activity to do. Um, later on, we shove ice cream and, and cake in their faces, and once they're all hopped up on sugar and adrenaline and red dye, we tell them, sit down and sit still, and the birthday boy or the birthday girl is going to open up all these presents in front of you, and none of y'all get to play with them, but you have to watch them do it. I mean, it's like a twisted experiment. And, um, and then at the end of the party, we give them more sugar and party favors and then hand them back to the parents and say, I'm so sorry, but good luck. And um, I'm shocked that birthday parties are still legal in, in, in this country what, what, for what we're doing. Um, but if you've ever been to a birthday party like this, uh, you'll have a parent that's, you know, slicing up the birthday cake 
and plating it and giving it to the kids. And whenever a kid, you know, gets the plate, what do they do? They look at it and then scan the room and say, hey, his piece is bigger than mine. Now, if, if, you, if you hit pause on this scene and say, what's going on in that kid's heart in that moment? Well, you say, okay, he's a kid. Give the kid a break. He's immature. He's young. He's, you know, he's selfish, needy, whatever. And if that's your instinct, just kind of roll your eyes because, you know, kids are kids. They're not as sophisticated as us adults. Then you don't know yourself very well. Because that same instinct is not just in children. It's in me. It's in you. It's in everybody in this room. That we all have this thing in us, this compulsive need to want to compare ourselves to others and see where, where you know, scan the room and rank everybody and see where do we stack up? Where do we, where do we fit? Where, you know, is somebody getting more than me? We all have this thing in us. So I, I want to look at two big ideas from this passage. One, what, what is the problem with that? What is the problem with comparison? And then what's the solution? Pretty simple. What's the problem? What's the solution? So let's look at the problem first. And to, to, to get into this, we kind of need to get into this story. And so if, if, you're, if you were with us last week, if you're, or if you're even familiar with how the Gospel of John ends, and if you're not, that's okay. Here's what basically happens. Peter, who's one of Jesus' close friends, he bailed on Jesus at his kind of greatest moment of need. And when Jesus was resurrected, he, he forgives Jesus, or he forgives Peter. He reinstates Peter. He tells Peter, go and tend to my lambs and feed my sheep, and I want you to carry on this ministry that I've called you to, and he commissions him to ministry. But then he says this in verse 18. He says, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, which was a, uh, a way of saying, it was kind of slang for saying that this is, you're going to be crucified. You're going to be murdered for your faith later in your life. And in fact, to make that clear, look at verse 19. It says, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And then Jesus says to him, follow me. So Jesus starts walking, and Peter starts literally following him. They're walking along. And as they're walking along, look at what happens in verse 20. It says that Peter turned, and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. This is the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? Now, this is a long way of saying Peter turned and he saw John. John is the author of this book, and for whatever reason, John always refers to himself indirectly as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So, you see in the scene, Jesus, Peter, they're walking along. Jesus just told Peter, you're going to die this terrible death. Peter turns, and he sees John, and what does he do? He says in verse 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Now, you know how sometimes you can ask a question, but it's not really the question that you're asking? Like, for example, uh, sometimes children will say something like, spaghetti for dinner again? And on the surface, the words of that question are, are we having spaghetti again tonight for dinner, dearest parents whom I love so much. Those are what the words say, but, but underneath it, there's an obvious subtext. The, the subtext is, I'm sick of spaghetti. I don't want spaghetti. You should have read my mind that I wanted something else. I wanted tacos. And all of that is subtext. When Peter asks this question, what about that guy? 
Jesus knows there's more going on underneath the surface. That's why he, he addresses the that's why he addresses the subtext. That's also why Jesus seems a little harsh with him. If you notice his, his response in verse 22, he says, what is that to you? And you think, well, that's kind of a harsh response. But Jesus is saying, okay, why is this such a big deal to you? Why do you need to know this? Why does this matter so much to you? Who cares if he lives until he's 80? Who cares if he dies tomorrow? He's confronting something in Peter. And what that thing is, is that competitive comparison instinct. This, this thing in Peter got triggered, which is in all of us, this instinct of, well, okay, well, what about that person? What about them? He's stacking himself up against somebody else. And you think, okay, Jesus, if this is a universal phenomenon, if this is just natural, if we all do this, why, why are you making this a thing? Why, why, you know, why are you being so kind of aggressive with him? Especially when you think about, okay, yeah, children do this. They say, how come he got a bigger slice of cake than me? Uh, we do this in our own hearts when we say, how come that person got the job promotion instead of me? How come their yard is so much greener than, than our yard? How come their kids are so much more well-behaved than, than ours? You know, we, we have this instinct inside of all of us, so why is Jesus making this a, de a deal? And here's why. Because when that comparison thing clicks on in us, what it does is it pulls you deeper into yourself. You start to curve in on yourself more and more, and you get preoccupied with nothing else other than you. How come they're getting something more than me? Well, how, how, how come I'm, I, you know, I deserve more? Uh, me, me, why not me? I, you know, it's all of this preoccupation with yourself. And here's the thing. When you get preoccupied with yourself, you become miserable. When you focus on you, you're guaranteed to not be happy. Think about it like this. There was this, um, there was this video that was on, on YouTube a number of years ago that I saw was being passed around. It was the science experiment that was done between, you know, with these scientists with these two monkeys in, in these uh, transparent kind of glass cages. So the monkeys can see each other. They can see the scientists. And what they would do is the scientists would put a pebble in the container. And if the monkey could grab the pebble and return it to the scientist the scientists would give them a little bit of cucumber as a little reward. The and the monkey would take the cucumber and eat it and love it. They complete this task, ah, get a little reward. Complete the task, ah, a little cucumber. And they did this over and over and over and over and over and over again, 25 times in a row, bam, 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 bam. The 26th time, they decided to do something different. So they put a little pebble in monkey A's cage. He returns the pebble and gets his cucumber. Puts a pebble in monkey B's cage, and when he returns it, they give him a grape. Now, apparently, monkeys are really into grapes because when monkey A sees that monkey B got a grape for doing the same thing that he did for a cucumber, he freaks out. He throws the cucumber back at the scientist. He's stomping around. He's screaming. He's going bananas. No pun intended. And he's, uh, he's, he's losing his mind. And you think about that. Okay, what happened? Monkey A was perfectly content with the cucumber. It was only when he saw that monkey B got the grape that he started to lose his mind and got angry and he got despondent. Here's Peter, and he just got told by Jesus, here's your life. 
You're going to live this life and you're going to die this terrible death. And Peter, on the surface at least, seems to receive it. He doesn't protest. He doesn't push back. He follows Jesus. But the moment he turns and he sees John, something happens in him. He was totally content with a cucumber. And then when he sees John, he's thinking, wait, he's not going to get a grape, is he? Is his, his story is not going to be better than mine, is it? The moment he goes into comparison mode, there's this thing that gets activated in him, and that's why Jesus is starting to address it, because he is being pulled in on himself, and he's drilling deeper into a sense of entitlement. He's getting deeper in touch with his own jealousy, with envy, with a sense of everything has to be fair, or I have to be superior to everybody else, and this thing is, this thing is sucking out all of his joy. It's like, it's like the Dementors in Harry Potter. They show up and they suck the joy, they suck the hope, they suck the happiness. The moment you go into comparison mode, it's like a high-powered vacuum pump. It just, it just sucks out all of your joy. That's why Jesus is addressing this. You know, you think about, um, there was this, uh, again, another, another um, research that was done recently by the University of Pittsburgh, I think of their School of Medicine, they were doing this research on the impact of social media to our moods. And I'm sure you've seen results like this or you've seen research like this that, that there's this correlation that the, that the higher amount of time that one spends interacting with social media, the more likely they are to experience depression. That's a fascinating phenomenon, but what's behind that? And here's what's behind that. You are, when you're on social media, you are being bombarded with images that activate that comparison thing in you. You see the screen, you're like, oh my goodness, look at that amazing meal that they're eating. And you're, you're looking at this while you're like eating a Hot Pocket over the sink. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and or, or you see this image of, you know, here's this um, amazing vacation that this, this family got to go on or these friends got to go on and you're, you're looking at that like in your cubicle at work. Or here, here, are, these, here are these really uh, beautiful friends and they seem to have so much life and they're on this trip and they're having so much fun together and you feel so lonely and you feel so bored. That instinct, that comparison thing, it, it sucks out all of your joy. The moment you go there, I mean, it's, 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 it's shocking. That's why Jesus is making this a big deal. This is the problem behind this, but okay, what about the solution? What do we do? I mean, if, if really the reason why so many of us feel angry, despondent, maybe underneath it, it really is this, this comparison thing. Maybe we've gone our whole life just walking through life saying, well, they have it better, they have this better, they have this better. Maybe that's the reason why some of us are so discontent, angry, depressed, whatever. Maybe that's part of it. So what's the solution for people like us? Well, let's look back at the story. Look at what um, Jesus says in verse 22. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, Peter, if I decide to keep John alive until I come back, why should that matter to you? You stay in your lane. Don't, don't worry about him. I'm in control of his life. Now, when Jesus said this, it, it created a little bit of a misunderstanding that the early church thought that Jesus said, well, John's just never going to die. He's just going to live forever. And so that's why John, who's writing this, adds verse 23 to kind of clear this up. He's like, by the way, Jesus didn't say I was never going to die. He just said, if 
I keep him around until I come back. What is that to you? But don't get lost in that. The point is, Jesus is doing two things here. And the first thing he's doing is he's looking at Peter and he's inviting him to do some soul work, to ask himself some hard questions. Peter, what, what is that to you? Why is this such a big deal to you? Do you need for y'all's lives to be even? Do y'all do you, both need to have the cucumber? Is that how you want to go through your life? Is that what you think life, the, the good life is, is just making sure everything's even? Or maybe, Peter, there's something more sinister going on. Maybe you think that you, you can't be happy unless you have a better story, unless you have the grape and everyone else gets the cucumber. Is that what you think life is really about? What, what is it to you? And I think what Jesus is doing, of course, he's, he's inviting us as well to ask ourselves these hard questions for us to do the soul work. So you go through life and you um, see that somebody else has what you think is the better life. They've got more square footage. They've got kids. They've got a happy marriage. They've got a lake house. They've got all the things they got, whatever. And he's looking at you and me and saying, okay, do you need those things in order to be happy? Do you need that life in order to be okay? Do you think I've shortchanged you in some way with the life that you've been given? You, you know, in some ways, I, I think the crux of the matter, the question kind of underneath all of this is, can you be okay not getting the life that you think that you want? Can you, can you be okay if your life is written in such a way that's written differently than the one that maybe how you would have written it? Because every single one of us has to wrestle with that question because every single one of us has a life that's different than the one that we would have scripted for ourselves. And the soul work hard question is, what is it to you? Can you be okay not getting the, the, the life that you think that you want? He invites us to do this hard, these hard questions, the soul work. But here's the second thing that Jesus does. He also invites us to follow him. You notice that? That's the, that's the last thing he says at the end of verse 22. He says, you follow me, which is um, emphatic in the original language. <coughs> Excuse me. He, he could have said, follow me, but he doesn't. He says, you follow me, which is a way of singling Peter out, a way of trying to get his attention of saying, Peter, you, you are looking at yourself. You're looking at John. You're looking at everyone else. Hey, 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 look at me. Focus on me. Look at me. You just worry about following me. That's all you got to do. This is, um, it reminds me of this passage later in the New Testament in Hebrews uh, chapter 12 when uh, the author there says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. I love that language of fixing your eyes on him because when, when you, if you fix your eyes on something, it takes concentration. It takes focus. You've got to focus your attention on something. You can't just glance at it every now and then. You can't just kind of look at Jesus every now and then. But he's saying, take your eyes off of you and lock them onto Jesus. This is the path to freedom. Um, in December, our family took a trip to Universal Studios to primarily go to Harry Potter World, to primarily get the butterbeer. And uh, when we went, it was a you know, super fun trip. We were there two or three days. And most of the, most of the time, we would leave early um, kind of beat the crowds and get back to our hotel. We were exhausted. You walk like 
a thousand miles a day at those places. And uh, but there was one day we decided to stay until the park closed, stay all the way to the bitter ends. We got you know dinner and we went to rides and it was dark and then the park closed and the rides were shut down. And we walked what was like the five-mile walk back to our shuttle bus to take us to our hotel. But the problem with that plan was the thousands of people that were at the park all had to leave at the same time, too. So we all, thousands of us, converged on this one spot to leave the park at the same time. Now, this, the way that you get out is like this long thoroughfare with all these shops and bars and restaurants and things. It's like, it feels like it's like five miles long to even just get to the parking lot. But the, the, the challenge is you have all these people out in the city coming into that part to enjoy the nightlife and the restaurants and things, and you have the thousands and thousands of people trying to get out of this little spot as well. So there was, I have never been in a crowd this Large, this pack, just a sea of wall to wall humanity trying to get out of the park. It was overwhelming the amount of bodies on bodies that there was stacked up trying to get out of the park at the same time. And we have our two kids with us. So if we think, oh my goodness, this is a terrifying moment, if we get separated from our kids in this moment, this is, you know, we'll never find them again. This is terrible. So what we did was say, okay, hold my hand and stay behind me and follow me. And stay close. You're going to have all these distractions. You're going to see toy shops and smells and restaurants and people and all these things around you. Don't focus on any of that. we got to get out of here. You stay on me. Focus on me. I'm going to hold your hand. You hold my hand. You stay close. Follow me. I'll get us through this insanity that we, we find ourselves in. Now, I bring that up because this is what Jesus is doing to Peter. He's saying, you, you're going to see all these distractions, all these things that are going to cause you to want to look every which way. Look at you. Look at John. Look at that. What would they have? Why don't I have that? Focus on me. Stay close to me. Follow me. Now, here's the question. How is that the solution? Okay, so you fix your eyes on Jesus. How does that fix this comparative thing in me and in you? Well, that's a great question. Uh, let's look at it. Look, look at how this passage ends. This is how the whole Gospel of John ends, but I think it's fascinating. In verse 24, he writes this. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the ending of the book. This is the ending of the letter. And the ending, when you read it, it's a little over the top. I, I read um, one commentator this week that said it's almost embarrassing because you have John who's just gushing over Jesus and, and, and almost uh, describing this like a, like a child would tell a story of like, if I told you all of the awesome things Jesus did... There wouldn't even be enough books in the whole universe to put them. I mean, it's so exaggerated. It's so over the top. But what does that show you? It shows you that here is somebody that has so fixed his eyes on Jesus that his heart has just, just expanded to a size of childlike devotion, childlike wonder, childlike worship. Here is this guy that is so amazing that the whole planet couldn't even fill all the things he has done. He's demonstrating for you what it looks like when you fix your eyes on Jesus. If you were to fix your eyes on Jesus for just a moment and just meditate on him, what would that do? Well, you begin to think about, okay, here's somebody who loved people at the margins of society when no one else would. 
He valued women in a culture that degraded them. He was compassionate towards sexual minorities when everybody wanted to avoid them. He was gracious and kind to lepers and those who were diseased. The, the people that society demoted and kind of pushed to the edges, he showed compassion and kindness in a way that the world had never seen before. And he did it with a degree of humility that the world had never seen before. He was always deferential, always submitting to his father's will. He chose a life of poverty. He, he, he lived a life that none of us would want. And yet it was humility on a scale that the world had never seen. And then in the end, he takes all of his resources, his life, his breath, his blood, and he gives it all away. He gives his life away for his people. He looks at God and says, God, I want you to, if you have anything on these people, anything that you could hold against them, I want you to put on me. And, and God does. He throws all of our sins, all of our failures, all of our mistakes on him so that we could be utterly and completely forgiven. So that God can look at us and say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now you start to think about that. You start to focus on the... the the, the uncontainable magnitude of what Jesus has done and the love that he has for you, that starts to make your heart swell like John's. Because you know what that tells you? That tells you the reason he did all that stuff was because he fixed his eyes on you. Before we fixed our eyes on him or before we ever even thought about fixing our eyes on him, he fixed his eyes on you. And he said, it is worth it to me to give up everything so that I could get them rather than to have everything and to lose them. When you know that you are loved like that, you know what that does? That begins to transform that thing inside of you that makes you want to compare anxious, envious, jealous, because you begin to say everything that this Jesus has given me in this life is a gift. It may not be the life that I would have written for myself, but it's good because he's good. And all those things that made you feel anxious and, and worried over and jealous over, they're, they're, they're still there, but they get demoted. They get blurry and pushed into the background. Don't you see, when, when you experience love like this, that's the solution. That's what changes you from the inside. It's receiving the love that Jesus has for you. So here's the ending. Here's the, here's the solution. Jesus looks at you and looks at me and he says, you follow me. Consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would give us the eyes to see the goodness, the glory, the beauty, the sweetness of Jesus, that we would cling and draw near to him in the insanity and the craziness of our own lives, that we would feel the freedom to bring him the things that we feel shortchanged over, the things that we feel anxious over, the things that we feel entitled to have that we didn't get, and I pray that you would overwhelm us with your goodness, that we might know in our soul that everything that we have from your hand is a gift. Only you can do that. Only you can do this work inside of us. So please do it. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.